we heard the gunshot right there and the people screaming. Then all the local guys just got up and ran. And as soon as they ran, I knew this is, this is not a good situation because they weren't curious, they were petrified. And I got my family hidden away and everything and then I stood in the shadows. And then a man came in dressed in camouflage clothing, carrying an, an AK-47, a Kalashnikov. And he went into the building, grabbed some of the workers out and just started beating them with a metal pole. And that was, a, for me, it was a tough situation because I was standing there and I'm thinking, how do I defend my family? How do I defend my friends? Do I hide away or do I confront the situation? And so I stepped out of the shadows and he saw me and I walked up to him. I put my hand out and I shook his hand. I said, my name's Rob, what's your name? And he looked at me for a second and then he shook my hand and he said his name was Commando. And he kind of just looked at me for a minute and he was like, where's your security detail? And I was like, oh, they're coming. So, you know, they're, they're a minute away, they'll be kissing. Then he kind of just checked me out for a while and then he ran out. That was tough, that was tough. That was the longest night of our lives. Welcome to Out of Adventuring, the show about explorers and inspiring adventurers and the details behind their incredible journeys. They not only take us to their hardships and highlights, but also let us know what they have learned on these trips that has changed them and their everyday life. Hi, I'm Torben from the World Explorers Collective and today with me is Graham Bell. He and his family have been on the road for well over 10 years, all in their Land Rover. And anyone who's into van life, anyone who's into Land Rover and overland travel for several weeks, months, or even years, who has that dream of freedom and who maybe just wants to escape and even pack his family, you should really, really listen to the next one and a half hours. Because Graham did exactly that. He and his wife got the travel bug many, many years ago and slowly decided to completely give up their life in South Africa and live in a Land Rover. And they did that with two young kids. They went into homeschooling and as the kids became teenagers, they pretty much have seen half the world. They've been to almost every continent. They've traveled 60 plus countries. The big downside, however, always was the lack of privacy because a Land Rover is not a big vehicle. And sleeping in a tent for a decade is also not as comfortable especially when you're a teenager. Seen tremendous and beautiful landscapes, but they've also seen the dark sides and the downsides of overland travel. Not only gun violence and true fear for life that they had to face, but the fundamental and essential fear of running out of money. Because the Bells didn't leave their life with millions on the bank account, there were many points during their trip where they had to struggle for money and they knew that maybe a month or two to go. But in the end, they always managed to make it work. Graham grew up in the 80s and early 90s in South Africa, a country which was governed by the apartheid regime. And growing up in a restricted country set Graham's fundamental desire for freedom. We all had a, a normal childhood for the first six or seven years mm. and mom and dad, brother, sister, all of that. And we lived in Durban, which is a coastal city in South Africa, which was quite uh, liberal compared to the rest of the country. Great surfing, just a beautiful coastal town. And unfortunately my parents got divorced and then the whole world just fell apart for us. 
how we went from a good middle-class lifestyle to my mom who had never worked a day in her life, having to support three children. And things got tough. Things were really tough and we landed up growing up in uh, uh, pretty tough neighborhoods. And unfortunately we moved back to Johannesburg where at least in, you know, in Durban, you could uh, go surfing, go to the beach, ride your mm. bike. It was, there was a lot to do as a, as a kid. And Johannesburg, there wasn't much to do except get up to no good, get into trouble, hang around with the wrong crowd, mm. you know, that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, I became a bit of a rebel. And then we landed up moving to a town called Kriegersdorp, which was ultra conservative mm. back in those days. It was a mining town. The, mo the majority of the population was conservative Afrikaners. And that was the eighties, right? It was tough being, that was, yeah, the, the eighties into the early nineties. And it was tough being, by then I was a little metal head. I got, I got into fights almost daily. It was just, it was just really, really tough. But what was really tough for us, I think was for me, especially was the isolation of, you know, I was really into American and, and British music and, and films and here I was stuck in this conservative little town with nowhere to go. You know, there was the city of Johannesburg nearby, but there was nothing there for me. You know, so I started listening to. Yeah. Just to yeah. get a bit better understanding. A lot of people that are listening and I have to say also me, yeah, are lucky enough to not having experienced what it means to be living in a suppressive country that was South Africa back then. So when you say you were really into American music and the isolation, how exactly was the status of South Africa back then? Like a full blockage from any kind of outside you know, information, media or products coming in? Or how was it? So it was interesting. The country was run by the Afrikaners, essentially, the apartheid government. But there was a large English-speaking community or population within the white population of South Africa. Mm. And that's because the, the British had controlled South Africa, for, South Africa for quite a few years. And there was a lot of mining. South Africa is a very rich country. There's a lot of minerals there and it's strategic uh, in its, in its position. And then during the cold war, especially in the late sixties into the seventies and into the eighties, South Africa was boycotted quite heavily by the rest of the world, but it was fighting proxy cold wars in Angola and in Southern Africa in general. And because of that, there were ties with, with the U S and, and England. And so it, the boycotts became more and more serious as the years came along and it, and it became, you could travel to a lot of countries. I don't think there were many countries that banned South African travelers, but the country was kind of like Brazil back in the day. Uh, when Brazil was very isolated, uh, South Africa had to be very self-sufficient. And how they related to me as a teenage kid growing up in it is, it's like, you know, the Sex Pistols were banned. You know, it was a, it was a conservative Christian society. So Krista Berg, do you know this, the singer Krista Berg? He sang Lady in Red or whatever it was. He had an album yeah, called Spanish exactly. Train. And an album called Spanish Train. And it was, there was a song on there about the devil and, and God playing cards for human souls. And because of that song, the, the album was banned. So there was a lot of that going on where they were trying to keep it a conservative country. And that meant there was a lot of restrictions on what was coming in to us. You know, the television uh, stations were 
there was local content or approved content only. You know, you mm. couldn't. Yeah, it was it was a conservative society, and it was very difficult for me, for instance. But a lot of the bands that I that I wanted to listen to the music that I wanted wanted to listen to it was banned, and someone would go travel to the UK and come back with a a tape of, say, the Sex Pistols, or the Smiths or something, and then it would be taped a thousand times, and mm. <laughs> so eventually what you'd have is this copy that you barely audible, but you could you hear the words, and it kind of felt like you were rebelling, just by doing the things you weren't supposed to. A couple of years ago, I came across this interesting story of this guy called Rodriguez, the sugar man who gained massive fame in South South Africa without even knowing because someone smuggled a tape. Do you remember him from back back then when suddenly it popped up and it was a big thing? Or did, do you know the story about it? I absolutely do. I, it started off, there was, I remember it was a very, this is my point of view on why he was so popular. There was a very conservative country. So I, we didn't have Playboy or... You know, any, like you couldn't see a woman's bare breasts in a magazine or on TV, but there was no swearing on TV. It was, it was like a Afrikaner, I don't know, I don't want to say that, but it was, it was a very concerned and the media was very controlled. It was weird because like they had a, a men's magazine called Scope and it was actually had really good journalism as well. It was a bit of a, a men's magazine and had a couple of scantily dressed women, but they had to have stars over their nipples and, and stuff like that. So it was, it was quite repressive. So. As teenage kids, we heard this song um, from here is, and I wonder how many times you've had sex, and I wonder if you know who's next. And there was another song yeah. that was quite sexual. And, and the kids were like, oh, he's talking about sex. That's quite funny. So everyone started listening to it. And then we kind of realized that the rest of the music was really good as well. So it, Rodriguez really kind of spread through the, the more liberal, open-minded community of, of, of young kids. You know, it, it was, mm. you'd go to a party and if there was Rodriguez playing, you know, there was a chance there was someone smoking a joint around the corner or it was, it was kind of a, a clarion call for the more open people, open-minded people. So that's kind of where it really started. And then there was all the rumors. Now we knew nothing about it. So you had the first album, which was Cold Fact. And when I was growing up, I was told, well, this was the rumors that went around that he committed suicide on stage. There was, you know, a lover killed him or this, that, you know, it was just all these rumors about him, but nobody knew anything about him, but mm. you could, it was, he wasn't bad. That was what was interesting. You could, as far as I, I remember, you could go and you could buy his CD, or not his CD, his tape or his record in the, in the music stores. And that led to, you know, millions of sales, which he saw nothing of, which is, which is quite sad. When actually, when I heard that. Yeah. When I heard that they found him, I was like, no, that's not true. That's not true. He, he got killed or, or whatever. You know, I believe the old story. So a lot of people were actually skeptical until he actually came to South Africa and saw him in the flesh. He then gave a massive, a massive concert, right? Once he realized that he has a huge, a huge following. Then I, I guess music was just one way for you and the friends and in general, the people that were teenagers at that time to also rise up against, against the government and being that liberal voice that push for change. Was that a big thing in your youth, just this uprising against the government and, or was it just everyone just trying to get by themselves anyways? It's difficult. You know, that I, I remember wanting to do something more political to protest against the apartheid government. And there wasn't, there weren't options really, you know, as a 15 year old kid living in a conservative town, 
I mean, was I going to go out there with a, a banner on my, and I didn't have the bravery to do that. I would have been beaten even more severely than I was on a regular basis just for being who I was, you know, wearing a Metallica t-shirt or having long hair when I was older. But definitely the, the more liberal, there was a, a, a large counterculture movement in, especially around the, the, the cities of Cape Town, Johannesburg and Durban. And there were nightclubs in the cities that we, we all kind of meet up. And these would be uh, liberal Afrikaans kids. It would be liberal uh, English speaking kids and later kids from the other community. And that's what kind of was a place to meet, you know, and that's where we could mm. uh, be ourselves and listen to the music uh, that we wanted to listen to. And that was, I think, a kind of a, a form of protest in itself to walk around in a conservative town dressed uh, like a punk or a metalhead or whatever. It was an, mm. an invitation for problems. And we got a lot of problems. I think that's such an interesting part. Of course, we live now in societies, most of us at least, where the way you dress is never a problem, really. The liberal path is definitely the path most of the nations go. And so it's sometimes very hard to imagine that just by wearing a, a T-shirt from a, you know, top-selling band at that time will, will cause you trouble. It's like someone today wearing a, you know, Beyonce T-shirt or something like that and will get in trouble because of that. It's just very hard to grasp maybe what kind of protest that already was in itself to just be not how everyone else is doing and not be the norm. Right. And I think a lot for a lot of conservative Afrikaners, especially, they saw the, the liberal English speaking people as part of the problem of this change that was going on in the country. Um, what really precipitated the change at the end of apartheid was the end of the Cold War. And, you know, I, I think if you know a little bit about South African history, you'll know that not long after the Berlin Wall went down, apartheid just started crumbling. And that's because mm. the, the NATO powers didn't need South Africa anymore. South Africa was a pariah. And the internal turmoil was that, you know, the conservatives saw that liberals were the problem, that it was the liberals who were saying, let's end apartheid. It's the liberals that were saying, let's open up and, and let's change. So you became a target if you were obviously different. And so I remember being 18, 19 years old, I could finally grow my hair long because in school, your hair could have to be like as long as ours is now. And I grew my hair long and, and just walking down the street with long hair. I mean, it, ha it didn't happen too much because by the time I was 19, I was six foot five and I'm not a little kid anymore, but I'd still, you know, it would happen. The cars would stop, three guys would jump out and that was it. It was game on. And it just became part of life. It sounds, it sounds absolutely terrible. And I think everyone will agree that it's great how many things turned out in, in the nineties. I mean, we had the same with, with East Germany where, yeah, so. Things just then change to a more liberal, liberal way, less repressive. And hopefully that is the direction we go in, in general. It seems to be the right direction. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit about that chapter of your life, which was obviously very, very difficult. And I'm really into history, so I could easily make this a history podcast about South Africa now, but I know not everyone is. I hope we paid it the right respect and I hope you uh, forgive me if I now jump a few years ahead, even though I think it's such an interesting topic and I urge everyone to really, really dig deep into the history books to understand all, all the details. Well, yeah, so I'll just backtrack a little bit. So when I actually started traveling, it was as soon as I could after getting out of school. Like I said, we didn't have a lot of money growing mm. up. So it wasn't like we were having trips to other countries. We basically, I, I didn't leave South Africa to the, the, the what they called the homelands. 
Um, but as soon as I left school, I started saving up and by the time, and, and what I did before then, when I had no money at all, what I'd do is I just put a backpack on my back and go hiking, go hitchhiking. And I covered quite a bit of the country, just putting my thumb out and getting into the car with people from all different races, colors, creeds, whatever. And just, it just gave me, it gave me a much better understanding of people and, and of cultures and stuff like that. And I really started enjoying that. So when I got the opportunity, I bought and sold some cars and saved money or whatever. And I got a ticket over to Israel and I went and I spent a year actually in Israel, staying on the kibbutz, working, traveling meeting people on that. And I came back to South Africa because I had a return ticket and basically to say goodbye because I was going to save up some more money and just go travel the world. That was just backpack the world. That was my whole plan. But as you might know, life has, uh, has a way of making decisions for you. Right. And I met Louisa, my wife, and she had also traveled to Israel. And this is now back in South Africa in Johannesburg. And before I know it, I was living the conventional lifestyle, we'd move into a house, we got a dog, we painted the walls and cut the lawn and uh, had a kid and got married and, you know, fast forward 10, 12 years, we had an immigration company. We had to both studied immigration law to become immigration practitioners. It's not a, a law degree. It was just a, an exam that you did with the, with the government, which allowed you to practice immigration law, but not represent clients. And, in court, et cetera. But Louisa is just so amazing at dealing with bureaucracy that I encouraged her to start her own business because I was doing really well with what I was doing before then. And before we knew her, she was doing so well that I started working with her. And we, we did really well. For so the first time in our lives, we had, because she also came from a, a tough background. She didn't have much growing up either. And we had stuff and we had opportunities and we had the South African version of the American dream and mm. running parallel to that, I was buying and, um, fixing up old Land Rovers as a hobby. And then, you know, old Land Rovers are great for traveling and stuff. You know, you just throw your kit in the back and you go camping and we started doing that. And then our camping trips started getting a little bit further and further away. And yeah, then we landed up buying a, a defender and driving up to, to Tanzania. And that was basically the, st the, the end of our normal life and the beginning of our new life. Started out with just a trip that was never planned to be a new life. Yeah. So Louisa's dad, I mean, it's, you know, it's life is, it's an onion, you know, there's layers within layers and Louisa's dad had worked his whole life. He did okay, but all he really wanted to do is travel as he got older because he hadn't really left South Africa either his entire life. And a lot of South Africans are like that, especially in the old days, it's like people just didn't travel. I mean, it's expensive and it's far and, and it's out of your comfort zone. So a lot of people didn't travel out of South Africa to, to Europe or even out into other countries in Africa. And he was encouraging us to travel. And so we started planning this big trip with the Land Rover and halfway through the whole planning, Louisa's dad died unexpected. And that kind of sealed the deal for her. She was like, okay, well, you know, life is short. Let's go do something. And, uh, that's how we landed up doing that, that first six month journey into Africa, which was absolutely fantastic. It was, you know, we were so scared, not scared. I don't know if scared is the right word, but we were really, there was, there was a lot of trepidation. We were like traveling into Mozambique and that we didn't know what to expect. 
and on the mm, the four by four and Overland forums. It wasn't called Overland back then; it was just called four by four forums. And that, and people were like, "Oh, you need to have all this medical gear. You have to have food for a month. You have to have this, that, and the other." And we crossed into Mozambique, thought, thinking the sky was going to fall on our heads. And it didn't help that you went from a beautiful paved road to the border, and after that was just deep sand tracks. And we're like, what the hell have we gotten ourselves into? But then that night we were in a really nice camp on the beach, having a burger and a beer. And we we're like, okay, this isn't that bad. And actually had the time of our lives. And when we got back to South Africa after six months, we were just, yeah, it, it was amazing. It, it changed us. It, we became the people we, we wanted to be when we were on the road. And that really kind of lit the fuse for us. For to start thinking about uh, another way of life. Yeah. So when you then came back and you realized this is a life that we could live for a very long time, if not forever, that you then, you know, sit down and, you know, get ready to sell the house and, you know, take all these maybe extreme measures and, and give up life in South Africa. Or, or how was that phase after you realized that this is a life you want to live for much longer? It didn't really happen like that. It was more like we came back and we thought, well, because the business was doing really well and we had everything that we thought we wanted in life. We couldn't buy a house, strangely enough, because we didn't earn enough to get our bank mortgages. Even though we were earning, earning a lot of money, they wanted just to pay huge deposits. So we always rented, which gave us a bit of freedom, I think. Um, but after we came back from traveling, there was like, there was this huge hole. There was something missing. And we didn't put our finger on it. We weren't like, oh, it's traveling, you know. It was just like we became restless. And we thought, oh, let's move to another town and let's rent a beautiful house. And and we did that. And it was a very cheap. It was only like just over $1,000 a month. But it was a mansion overlooking the sea. And it was like a real millionaire's lifestyle. And we thought, wow, okay, now we, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of poor kids who, you know, had two pairs of shoes growing up. To live in this house where the whole front of it was glassed and you'd wake up in the morning, there'd be whales and dolphins in the sea in front of you. And, and uh, it was just a different way of living. You thought, okay, well, this is going to make us happy. But six months into it, we realized this isn't making us happy. This is actually making us miserable. This isn't, this isn't what we thought it was going to be. And then we decided, I think we were drinking some nice South African red wine around a fire. And we're like, you know what we should do is we should go back to Malawi because we all love Malawi. So we made the arrangements, took a month off, packed the kids into the Land Rover. And I think within a few hours of being back in the road all together, singing, singing along to the beach boys, getting ready for an adventure, we were all like, wow, this is, this is something. This is, I think this is what we've been missing. And mm -hmm. the trip to Malawi was full of adventure and we had a massive amount of problems and, and then all of that, but it's just, it was just a huge adventure. We got back home and then we started thinking, okay, maybe we should do something completely out of the ordinary. And that's when we started talking about Argentina to Alaska. And that then became the first really big trip where you went out of Africa and actually, actually ventured into the world. I was it actually with kids, because I think this is something that a lot of people always wonder. First, they wonder, okay, how do you do these trips with a partner? Both people need to be aligned, but then you also have two kids. I mean, they probably were at an age where they were just very happy to, to be on the road, but how much of a consideration was that, that you said, okay, we need to make a plan. How does it actually work with the kids? Or were you just saying, well, we're going to figure it out along the way. To be perfectly honest, 
we only plan to be on the road for 18 months, even from Argentina to Alaska. So that was our mindset. It later, and I'll, and I'll get into that a bit later, we ended up becoming a lifestyle. But when we first kind of headed out, we, we made all the arrangements, put all our stuff into storage. We, we gave up the lease on the house. We took the kids out of school and we got permission from the government to homeschool them, which wasn't very difficult. And there was, the, once the kids were approved for homeschooling, there was no kind of follow-up from the government. That's not like they worried at all that they were following some kind of curriculum. So that was relatively easy. And I, and I think that was a major consideration for us was actually how much time and real quality time we got to have with the kids, when it was just us traveling mm-hmm. with the Land Rover and going to these countries and having adventures. It was, we were happy and we were happy in a, in mm-hmm. a, in a, in a, we were satisfied. I think happiness is an overrated word. We were, we were satisfied and we we're having a great time together mm-hmm. and we're really getting to know our kids. And they really enjoyed being on the road with us. And I mean, think about it. You're 12 years old or you're eight years old. And you say, your parents come to you and say, okay, kids, you got an option. You can, we can go travel for a year and a half and just have a blast. Or do you want to keep going to school? And the kids, are, yeah, obviously we sold them. We sold them in a way that, because we knew what we wanted to do. And then the yeah. kids are like, no, no, let's go travel. Let's have fun. And so it was, it was, it took a year to extract ourselves from normal life. It's, it's amazing to give up everything and, and just go and live and be free. And it, it was very difficult. It was a year of a lot of hard work and soul searching. You mentioned that the big, beautiful house by the beach, it, it didn't make you happy. What, what was it that didn't make you happy that you were so sure that, you know, that tough, tough life on not being on the road is a better way. I, I think it was a combination of things. The one was we'd had a taste of freedom and, and I think if we hadn't traveled before we'd moved to that beautiful house, we wouldn't have felt that way. But you know, when, when you're out in the middle of the Serengeti and you're on your own with your family in your vehicle. And you're dusty and sunburnt. And you're just smiling from year to year, and you're just having the time of your life. And then, and now you have to go and sit and sit with the neighbors and be normal and talk about boring normal stuff and and just be normal and boring. It's it's. I think that's what that kind of made it difficult for us. And also, we didn't we didn't really have people like us because the, that six months had changed us. It changed who we were fundamentally. And it was difficult because nobody understands. So like if, if I meet people today, if I meet people who've been traveling like I have for years, those are the only people that understand me. You know, mm. I've struggled to, to, to get on the same wavelength with people who don't understand what we've done because it's so fundamentally life change. And I think that was part of it. I think that was, we'd had this, this glimpse into what we could be. And it was much more important and I think much more satisfying to be that, that adventurous person mm. that, with the, the, the dirt under their nails and, and living in a tent and just having a new experience and adventure every day and relying on yourself and relying on your family and just, just, just having that incompar- incomparable experience. It's difficult to be satisfied with normal life once you've had that. That's why there's actually yeah. a Dutch saying, it's begin er niet aan. It is for Slavin. 
which basically means uh, you probably understand a bit of that, but it means do not start. It's addictive. And that's the overland lifestyle for us. Yeah. Yes. I think a lot of people Sorry, will probably, will prob yeah, no worries. Sorry about that. No worries. Sorry, I think you a said? lot of people will, yeah, I was just saying a lot of people will probably, you know, pull out the butt and say, yeah, but I mean, isn't it really uncomfortable, but don't you, you know, just sometimes want to be in a, in a, in a comfy bed. And I think it's very easy, of course, on the one hand side to see the romantic aspect of, of living out of a vehicle and traveling to different places. And at the same time, it is probably also quite easy to see all the obstacles and all the ifs and all the buts and, you know, a bit the, bit the fears of when things go wrong and difficult situation, but up ahead and instead of, you know, having maybe that mindset of allowing just things to happen as they happen. How was it for you? Was it, is it, is it difficult, especially when you mentioned the first year was getting used to, was it that, that you were getting used to, or what was it you were actually getting used to that in that first year in the, on the road? Well, the, the African trip was surprisingly easy, but other than the fact that I got very, very sick in Mozambique and I lost about, uh, 15 kilograms in 10 days, there was, I was just wow. sick as a dog. And then Louisa had been a lot of, I think a lot of people would have been, well, we're going home. She had been like, stop being a pussy, take your meds, get in the vehicle. We're going North. And so that's, so, so you got to understand this. You were talking earlier about having a couple that have the same mindset. And I was very lucky to have someone like Louisa who wasn't going to say at the first sign of trouble, going to say, Hey, get, you know, let's get the hell out of here. She's the kind of person who'll, you know, take on the challenge. She's not afraid, she's mm. afraid of a challenge. So where we, our first year on the road, um, we circumnavigated South America and when we arrived in, in our, in our, in Uruguay. The goal was to drive from Argentina to Alaska. And we realized very quickly that we were quite spontaneous. You know, I like to say that there's, there's the, the German way of traveling and there's like the African way of traveling and the German way of traveling is, and, and sorry for the stereotype, my grandmother's German, so, but the, the, the German way of, of traveling would be very structured. You have a goal and you have, you get there on this time and you eat these meals while you're going there and you got to see these sites along the way. And that's, and then the African way of travel is more like, well, let's see what happens. You know, let's go with the flow. Let's kind of, um, let, 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 let's, let's take it easy and enjoy it. And we had a very, a, a combination of that. I mean, we, at the beginning, we first tried to travel with a schedule and we just eventually threw it out the window. It was just so much easier just to go with the flow. And we were sitting around a campfire in, an, in Uruguay and we thought, well, we're so close to Brazil. Why don't we just go and visit Brazil? And we landed up going all the way to the top of Brazil. And if you know uh, the size of Brazil, it's the same size as the USA. So it was always like, we'd, we'd, we'd go a little bit up the coast and we'd get to an amazing place and meet yeah. amazing people. And people would say, don't go to Brazil, you'll die or whatever. And we were like, we're South Africans. We're used to problems, you know, we're tough. And we, we just loved Brazil and loved the people. And the Land Rover was actually performing very well and it had done through the whole of Africa. But when we eventually got down to Patagonia, it was already winter. And then we started having mechanical problems with the Land Rover. And that was, that was actually a massive challenge for us because 
I'm not, I wasn't mechanical at all. And neither is Louisa. I mean, we could change tires and, 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 you know, bolt stuff on and do that kind of stuff. But in terms of actual mechanical work, we, we, we didn't know that much. And then we got into the Andes and then we started having problems with the vehicle because of the altitude and, and it was a lot less of a, like an overland holiday than it had been in Africa because it was a lot more challenging. Driving at mm. 5,000 meters above sea level in winter and vehicles, vehicles breaking down. You've got two kids in the vehicle and you realize with you're in a situation that could actually turn out to be very bad and you have to sort it out yourself. You can't just rely on other people, but it's those kind of hardships at the end of the day that really make, when you get through to the other side and you fix the problem and you pull together and you, and you're, you're, you, you're self-sufficient and that's what makes it really rewarding. When you're, when you get to the other side of this adventure and you're like, wow, we did that. What else can we do? And yeah. Yeah. So we found ourselves in Colombia eventually uh, meeting amazing people and just having the greatest adventures along the way. And then we decided, well, we haven't had enough of South America because we were supposed to ship to Panama and we decided to go back to Brazil via Venezuela and through the Amazon to the Guyanas. And then, yeah, back down into Brazil. But when we got back to Brazil, um, we, we were at a bit of a junction because we'd already been on the road for two years and it was supposed to only be 18 months. And Louisa was, she was getting a bit homesick. And, and like you were saying earlier, you know, sometimes you just want to lie in a bed, you know, we'd been living in the tent, in a roof tent with the children now for two years straight, almost every day. Mm. And Louisa was getting a bit tired and I, I just felt, had completely fallen in love with South America and the whole lifestyle that we were having this, the traveling. And I said to Louisa, okay, go back to South Africa uh, for a month. And if you say that that's it, that you're tired of it, you want to go back home, then we'll take the Land Rover back to South Africa and go back to our old lives. And mm -hmm. she was back for two weeks in South Africa and she phoned me and she said, no. Uh, she wants to keep on traveling. And that is the moment where it stopped being a journey and became a lifestyle. I hope that answers your question. I'm very good at getting off track. I mean, this is the wonderful part. If uh, one question just uh, creates so much storytelling. And I think it's very telling that at some point you question what you're doing. And in this case, it was, it was your wife thinking, you know, okay, are we doing the right thing here? And it's very interesting that she checked in back home, got us sent off what life could be and realized, yes, we made the right choice. And, and then you guys doubled down and it was okay. As you said, now, now it became a lifestyle question. And I know you get that, you get asked that a lot because it is just, I think for a lot of people, the, the interesting part, if you talk about a year or two years, I think a lot of people can imagine that you save up some money and you go for it. But especially if you consciously decide to make it a lifestyle that there's then this thought, okay, we need to actually keep this engine engine running in that sense and you then really focused on on writing was it something that you've always had as a as a passion that you had done in the past or how did it come up that you i mean you're now a chief editor obviously successful writer but how did this writing come up for you when i was a kid one of the escapes i had was reading books i mean that was i mean music was great and, and, and maybe watching a video or two here or there, but what really, really opened my mind and, and, and helped me escape the, the dreariness and the suffocation of the life that I was living was to go to the library and take out five books a week. And 
that's what I did. I was just a voracious reader. I read and read and read every day. I think about a book a day. And I, I, I started developing this dream of becoming a writer. And when I left school, I, I approached my parents and I said, I want to go and study journalism and filmmaking actually. And my, my dad said, my mom said, oh, I'll pay. Cause I said, I would pay a third of the, of the fees by working as a bartender at night. And my mom said, okay, well, if your father says he'll pay another third, then we can do it. And then my father refused. So that was, that was that I didn't have the opportunity to study after high school. And I remember, but I remember going to a, a newspaper um, that was looking for a journalist, and, uh, a beginning journalist. And I went and I, and I wrote a, an example they wanted me to, to, to fabricate this, this news article. And the editor phoned me a couple of weeks later and said, the job was almost mine, but someone had come in with a, a journalism degree. And obviously they had to take the person with the, the journalism degree. And, and that was so crushing to me that I kind of gave up on the idea, but of, of writing, but it had always been an interest of mm. mine. And, and, and I, I kind of, I kind of fell into it, you know, when I was thinking, um, when we'd been traveling for so, so long, I hadn't put pen to paper. I hadn't written a word in years other than the usual crap, uh, nothing creative, but after circumnavigating South America and obviously having done the trip up in, in Africa. I started thinking and looking at, at other people who had written books about their travels and I was like, well, is there a story here? You know, is there enough here to keep people interested and actually to deserve their, their time to read it? And, and I was, and I was pretty sure there was, we'd been through so much and we'd changed so much and we sacrificed so much to achieve what we had. That while Louisa actually, when she flew back to South Africa, we were staying in a friend's cottage in Brazil on a little coffee plantation. And that's where I wrote the majority of my first book, which was actually called, we will be free. It's this idea of this concept of freedom and it's freedom in a way that it's freedom from, you know, materialism. It's freedom from the restrictions of, of a conservative society. It's the freedom to be who you are and the freedom to go where you want to live and learn. Mm. And I finished writing that book in, in Ecuador on the second trip up to Colombia to, to carry on our journey up to Argentina. And I remember sitting with, uh, Luisa, we were renting a little cottage and we'd run out of money. Basically, I think we had enough to keep us going for another two or three months. And, and she was like, uh, what are we going to do? And I'm like, this book's going to be great. You know, we're going to get over to the America and we're going to go to the overland shows and the press will get involved and I'm going to sell a thousand, a million copies and don't worry about it. This will be fine. And it didn't work out like that, but that was almost 10 years ago and we managed to keep traveling and, and we're still on the road. But, and I, th I think there were a really good, a lot of good feedback about the book. I never had the confidence to approach a publish a publisher. And, and I think part mm. of the idea was also self-publishing. It's a two headed dragon because on the one hand, it gives you freedom to publish whatever you want, but you also don't have professionals telling you if it's good or not. And on the other hand, Amazon, when they advertise self-publishing, they say, oh, you can make 75% of the royalties and this and the other. But the reality is that Amazon makes 80 to 85% of the royalties. And you just get a little slice of that. 
but but that's mm. the business side of it. But the writing, I really, really, really enjoyed it uh, because it 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 allowed me. It was my therapy after a, a tough childhood and upbringing. It was it was great for me to to grow and learn as I traveled and to become a new person, but then also to to articulate that 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 change and the adventures we had through writing. And then the book, even though it didn't sell a million copies, it still, you know, it still got positive feedback. And was that then enough fuel to keep you going and say, okay, well, I mean, you can't be lucky just with the, with the first punch. You just, you then you keep going and maybe also focus on more like online articles and these kind of things. And just like gave, gave that you some, some passion to say, okay, I can actually write a book that gets positive feedback and my writing is good enough. I can really put myself into that. It made us almost no money in the beginning. It's, it gets pretty depressing. By the time we got into the US, we were broke. We spent the last, essentially our last $500 on a box of books. We will be free. And we went to the Overland Expo in Flagstaff, Arizona, and I was expecting, you know, it was going to be an amazing event and, and, and this was going to be our introduction and, and. And it just snowed all weekend. So we landed up spending a lot of time in the tent and not being able to go out there and push the book and sell the book and all that kind of stuff. But what we found and we landed up, it, it got, like I said, it got pretty depressing for a while. We were, we were going to car shows, just showing up at car shows and setting up tents on the Land Rover and asking if we could show people the Land Rover and sell some books. And it was hard work, right? but the Americans, they were quite they were amazing. You know, they were, they were so generous and they were so amazed by what our story and our vehicle and all of that, that, um, we ended up pretty, doing pretty well, just selling books out of hand, just going to car shows and selling books out of hand and then just living very cheaply. And we eventually managed to get ourselves up to, to Alaska and then we ran out of money completely. We were sitting in a place called Homer. And, uh, we went into the, the library, which was full of homeless people. And we'd been camping in the, in the, in the forests and stuff. It just smelled like campfires and stuff. It was terrible. And, and I went up to the, the, the lady at the, the, the librarian and I said, look, the, I see you having a, a book show. You know, I'd like to sell some books. And she came back and said, I won't call the police. And I went back to Louise and I'm like, what the hell are we going to do? We had 17 bucks left, but a guy came along and he bought a couple of books and we managed to get into Canada and I'd. It's, I think one of the, the things about growing up poor, relatively poor, I mean, there's real, there's real poverty, but I mean, we didn't have two cents to, to rub together most of our childhood. But what that does is that kind of, that also liberates you in a way because you, you kind of know it's going to be okay. You know, I think for a lot of people mm. to, to not have any money and be in, in Alaska and winter's approaching, I think that would be very scary for them if they had a normal middle-class upbringing. But. You know, the universe always delivers. That's one thing I've learned. If you're really putting yourself out there and you're doing the best you can, you'll always find a way. And have we found a way? Yeah. It's well, pretty... I think it's not depressing. I think it's very powerful. And I think people who, you know, trying to put yourself into that position of thinking, okay, I now have to sell a few a few books. And exactly what you said, that yeah, like one yeah. sentence now like really that. struck me is, that you have to put yourself out there. And I think that's something yeah, very scary. Sometimes it's okay, I'm now out here. I have to put myself out there. I have to put my name to it. And I, I just now need to make this work. 
there's no plan B, there's no backup. And then, then that gives you all of a sudden this burst of, I don't know, either it's, it's energy or confidence. And then things start to happen because you put everything you have into it. It, it makes you dig deep. You know, it, you discover what you really made of when you're faced with a mountain like that. And it's not a physical mountain, but mm. all of the, 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 the challenge is motivating yourself. And, and I think what made it really even more challenging is I had a family with me and I had to be, I had to lead from the front. I had to motivate them. I couldn't show weakness. I couldn't show doubt. I had to be strong and I had to deliver because I was the one who was promising that I could do this. And, and that really, really helped me to, to understand, you know, we, we all think we have strength. Um, but when you're in a situation like that, you really discover your strength. And, you, and it's because you don't really have a choice. What do you do? Do you give up? You can't just give up. You keep fighting. You got to keep doing it. And, and a lot of people, in it, and it's interesting because we met so many people along the way. And they'd all say, oh, it's amazing. You're doing what I love. I'd love to do that. And, and I was like, you guys have got no idea what we're actually going through to make this happen. You know, to keep going. It was, it was a massive fight. But coming out of it on the other side, it was just, it was absolutely amazing because it really gave us strength. What, what about your kids? What did, what do they think? They're now grown ups, and you, yeah, you don't live in the, yeah, in the Land Rover anymore. I guess your kids sort of moved out a while ago and you and your wife also have, have no plans to settle a bit more down. But sometimes when, when you sit at the table and reflect about all these adventures and yeah, and also what are they doing now and how do they think of, of their upbringing now looking back? This is our first month. We've actually just moved into a little villa in Mexico. And the kids moved in with us. And it's our first month of having a home in, um, since 20, 2011. And we've been permanently on the road for all this time. And it's taking me a while to actually get used to the idea of having a home um, and having time for hobbies and stuff like that. But, you know, for the kids, it's not a big deal the way they grew up. It's not a big deal. I mean, everyone talks to them and they're like, that's so amazing. You're so lucky and oh, all these places. But again, they didn't see the, the sacrifices that, that we had to make. Yeah. You know, a lot of people look at our lives and I think they kind of see it as a one big holiday. And it was the opposite yeah. of that. So the kids had to make a lot of sacrifices. They didn't, they had one bag of toys, you know, as we traveled. They would make friends and we'd leave. You know, it, it was, it was tough for them, but at the same time, I, I speak to them all the time and, and, and about it and that, and I, they don't have any regrets and they're honest with me. And I mean, we've, we're so close. We, I mean, we spent mm, yeah. how many years next to each other, right next to each other. And, and you really, really get to understand people and each other and, and they're, they're pretty amazing. Because my son, especially my daughter, my, my daughter's a bit, she's a bit shy, Jessica, she's a little bit shy, but Keelan can communicate from everyone from a preschooler to a, a CEO with a PhD, you know, and he can communicate with them on their level, not so much the preschooler, but definitely the, the, the MD, the CEO, because that's the way his mind thinks. Because as we were tra as we were traveling, the, the whole goal of the, of our education, of their education was, it wasn't just to learn 
in the book. It was to learn by mm. doing, and it was to love to learn. And, and they really kind of picked that up. So Keelan is now, he fell in love with tech, technology, and that's mm. all he's interested in. Man, he's actually been working remotely for an American company for a while now, and he's finally, he designed a computer called Lancer, the long-awaited, not long-awaited, no compromise editing rig. I don't know why he called it that, but he's been designing this since he was 14 years old. And he finally got to put it all together. You know, it, it took him a few months of saving up, but now he built his own computer. He went to the States and he bought all the components and he built it in a hotel room and came back to Mexico with it. And now he's finally got that wall of technology that he's been dying for for so long. And I'm really excited for him to see where he's going to go in life because the sky's the limit for him with his intellect and with his knowledge and with his passion. And Jessica, on the other hand, she's just the sweetest, most loving person you ever met. She just came home with a stray dog, which is controversial. Uh, <laughs> But that's just who she is. She's just the sweetest, kindest mm. person. She's 19. Now. She's just finding her feet in life. And we're quite happy for her to just kind of take her time and find who she wants to be. And, and we'll see. I don't know what the future holds. We might move to Europe. I have, I have British, uh, British passport and we're pretty big. probably going to mm. all have German passports by the end of the year. We might split up from the kids and Louise and I will go back to traveling full time. I don't know. Jessica probably won't ever go camping again in her life, if I'm honest. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, she's not interested. I know. <laughs> I mean, she, 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 she did it now for what, uh, 13, 13, 14 years? And I was like, okay, that's it. I've, I've, I've done it. I've done it all. That's right. She, she's so happy in the villa we're in now because she has her own bedroom with her own bathroom and comfortable couch and, her, and all those normal things that people take for granted. Mm. You know, she, I mean, picture teenage kids in a, in a Land Rover going across West Africa and they both got malaria, no private space. It's hot and it's muggy and it's, you know, so I understand it completely. I mm. mean, they they, they've, they've had it tough. It's time they have a little bit of comfort, you know? Yeah. And who knows, maybe, uh, maybe after a few months, a few years of comfort that travel box bites again or something like that. Well, I'm, I'm going to be fine. People if they're. Sorry. No, go, go for it. Um, I'm probably flying to Guatemala with uh, my son next, with Keelan next year to go buy a super carry. It's a um, Japanese micro van and uh, we're going to kit yeah. it out for him so he can travel with it. The only problem he has is he's six foot four and 130 kilograms. So I don't know where the heck he's going to fit himself in this micro van because he's longer in it and he's taller than it. But anyway, so, so he's going to get his little, his little van and we're going to kit it out and then we'll probably travel together around Mexico. We'll take the Land Rover and he'll come with his little micro van and I can drag it on the beaches and whatever. So he's up for it. Yeah. You know, he's up for it. And, um, uh, to a degree, I think it's going to be part of his life when he moves to Europe, which he probably will eventually, then it's likely that he'll be mm. heading down to Morocco regularly or Turkey or, and who knows how far he'll go. Yeah. But he loves it. He loves it. He still loves it. But yeah, Jessica's not, not going to be. No, that's, that's also perfectly fine, I guess. And then you, no, got, no, then you guys do uh, regular holidays uh, or longer stints, maybe a month here, a month there, or just like a long, long holidays. That's also really, really wonderful in itself. Yeah. I think 
I, I don't know how much you want to talk about the travel part or, or the future, or do you want to go back into the traveling that we did a little bit? No, go, go, go for it. Go for it. Like whatever you have on your mind. And I'm um, definitely curious about the future for sure. So, yeah. So like, just talking about Alaska and, and the, so yeah, I think to understand the future, you've got to kind of really get a better understanding of the past and what we went, what we did. So after traveling in Alaska, we came back down to the U.S. and our financial situation didn't improve. We were basically living day to day, but our visas were running out for the U.S. and we decided to go down to Baja, Mexico. And Louisa found this ranch up in the mountains. And when people think of Baja, California, they don't think of mountains. But there's actually some pretty high mountains in the middle of the peninsula. And there is an isthmus. I think it's a peninsula. Anyway, we landed up taking care of this ranch for six months over the winter and they had snow and all that. And while we were there, Louisa had this idea that we should write a, a book and put it on Kickstarter. And I was like, this is a terrible idea. That's never going to work. And she was like, no, no, no. And basically it's about how to do what we do and what we've learned and all that kind of stuff and all recipes for camping and how you make money and how you motivate each other and how you deal with emergencies and how you prepare the vehicle and which vehicle to take and all that kind of stuff. And by then we had enough experience to, to write a book like that. So eventually I agreed. And then we sat down and wrote this book. It was called Travel the Planet Overland. And, um, she put it on Kickstarter and, um, it, it became quite a success. It wasn't massive, but I think we made about $40,000 out of it. Wow. Which is significant. And then when we were very smart, what we did is when we printed the books to fulfill the, 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 the campaign, we printed double what we needed. So basically all the other books, and obviously you pay a lot less, the more you print. And those mm. excess books became a cash cow for us because it was mostly, it was almost pure profit selling those. Um, yeah. So that was, that was a big move that really kind of changed it for us, uh, doing that, that Kickstarter. And then we got uh, a tire company came and threw $10,000 at us. And it was, it was, it was a very good period for us, but it's almost kind of like the universe encouraging us. So we, we could have done a couple of things. We could have sold the Land Rover in the U.S. illegally for a lot of money, could have taken the money from the Kickstarter and we could have gone back to South Africa and started over again. But, but now we were, at, we were really into this lifestyle. You know, there was, it wasn't really a choice for us. We just wanted to keep traveling. We wanted to travel around the world. So we took that money and we got this idea that, so we had been in the Land Rover. It was a Defender 130 double cab with a roof tent. And after four years now, it'd been four and a half years of living in that tent with the kids full time. But we realized if we were, I realized if we were going to keep on traveling, I'd have to make it more comfortable and, 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 you know, living in a tent because you're living outdoors, essentially permanent. And that gets really tough. You got nowhere you can sit nicely. And you're all living in the roof tent, right? All of us in all that of, one tent. You. So living in the tent, living outside, it was tough. I mean, remember we came from this beautiful mansion by the beach and now we're camping in gas stations and Brazil and stuff, you know, it, it got pretty rough. Mm. Um, so we eventually we returned to the U S with the Land Rover and then took it apart and built a camper on the back. And that was a massive undertaking for us, especially for me, because it was my project because I, I barely passed industrial arts at school, uh, woodworking and that. 
I, I remember making a chair and one of the legs was too long and I managed to cut that down and then the other legs are too long. And eventually it was a chair that was sitting two feet off the ground, two inches off the ground, you know, <laughs> so to, to build an entire camper was very ambitious, but I think it was also part of this whole rebirth process that I was going through. Mm. And also, you know, you, you, you look at what you'd be able to achieve with very little and think, well, I, I managed to do that. You know, what else can I do? You know, and, and it's about pushing yourself, I suppose. And, and that was. There was, it took me six months of design and, and, and just sleepless nights, just planning this whole build. And then I did it in a, in a, in a friend that I, in Florida, that, that welcomed us to their house and said, oh, you can come build the vehicle here. We've got a workshop and every tool you need. And we got there and it turned out to be a greenhouse and there were hardly any tools. And so that was tough. I mean, I don't know if you've been to Florida, but it's hotter than the sun. Yeah. And as humid as the sea. Yeah, and that in a greenhouse, I, I don't want to imagine. Right. And so I stripped down the Land Rover, sold all the parts that I took off for it. But basically, I paid $9,000 for the whole vehicle in South Africa in 2009. And I sold the parts that I took off it for $9,000 in 2016 in, in America. So, you know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a bad deal. But then I, I bought this box on the back. And the, the trick with bolding it was that I had to have access from the front to the back. For the front seats to the back, I had to have seating for the kids. I had to have sleeping space for four people. I had to have a kitchen, a bathroom, and all of that kind of stuff. And I had to do all of this with limited technical experience. But we built it. Keenan helped me to quite a lot. Louisa got in the way more than she helped. She was really trying to help, but she was more like stealing my tools and hiding them away. And because she, she got the idea, she could build the whole interior in, in five days. And I and this is. Before we were shipping the Land Rover to Europe, she'd already booked the flights, the, the shipping container and everything. And then she decided, and I was still building the camper and she decided she was going to build the interior in five days and just, yeah, anyway, it was driving that thing. I didn't even have a test drive. We were, I was still building the rear door while she was packing the stuff in to take it off to the port and yeah. It was nerve wracking, but eventually we got it over to, to the UK where I continued uh, building it. And, and then in Germany, we built it, and, you know, fixed a bit more and we we're living in it and building it at the same time. And eventually we got it all done in Portugal. I think we, we stayed for a while at a friend's house to finish it up. And then we drove it across West Africa and the journey itself was really, really tough, but I'm very proud to say that the camper that we built had zero issues. And this is driving the absolute worst roads in the world. And there was another great thing, you know, it's, it's, it's when you look back on it, you go, well, we'd actually did that. You know, we achieved that. I didn't know I could do that. I didn't know we could do that, but we did it. Mm. You know, when people, everyone was saying, you're crazy. You can't do it. We went and did it. Yeah. And that, that there was, that was a great achievement, but yeah, the, the West Africa part of the journey was, I think pretty much the, the toughest part of it, of it all. We had limited funds when we were in, so the the money from building the vehicle and stuff, the Kickstarter, it ran out, um, after the flights to Portugal and obviously all the expense of building the camper and that eventually we were back down to where we began, but now we were sitting in Morocco, (laughs) uh, but luckily I started writing for expedition portal and overland journal back in 2016, I think. And the occasional article that I wrote for them just as a freelance, that was enough to, to get the fuel 
fuel in the tank. And then I started having some corporate sponsors here and there. And, and that helped financially. I mean, there wasn't a lot of money. It was maybe like a thousand dollars a month or $500 a month to put up stickers on the vehicle and promote yeah. companies and do all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But it was this, especially in Africa, because we had 17 countries ahead of us. We had to get visas for most of those countries, even though we were traveling on South African passport. And the visas cost on average a hundred dollars per person. So that's four people, 17 mm -hmm. countries. That was tough. And the Land Rover started breaking down as a Moroccan mechanic basically broke the gearbox in, in Morocco and, and it got tough. I think Morocco was easy. Senegal was relatively easy. Mauritania was very, very tough. Guinea-Bissau was hard work. And I don't know if you've done much travel in, in Africa, but. I've been, been to Botswana. That was beautiful. Yeah. Botswana is nice. Botswana's nice. This is not Botswana. It's very different. This is, you know, the, the road to the, to the border post is a washed out river track. You know, the, you have uh, nowhere to sleep at night. There's, there's no campsites. There's no, there's no organization really. It's just every day it's bouncing along, dealing with heat, dealing with corrupt police, dealing with very, very bad roads, uh, getting malaria, getting sick, just, just every day uh, being, just trying to motivate yourself. I, I remember getting sick. I remember where it was, but just being basically running on 50% the entire West mm. Africa, which is very, very difficult because you, you need so much patience. You need so much energy just to get from point A to point B. And, you know, it's, it, it's very, very, very difficult to keep yourself and your family motivated and keep them going. And then we had a problem in Nigeria where we, we were staying at a, a campsite, not a campsite, it was a motel with large gates and walls. It was a very dangerous town uh, called Katsina Allah. And you have Boko Haram is not far away. You had, this is the kidnapping capital of Nigeria as well. It's run by gangs. The cops were volatile. The military was volatile. And then there was a murder outside our, outside the motel as we were sitting there. And we were the German and a German couple and a German family, uh, sorry, a British couple and a German family. And it was very telling to me that the, we were all sitting, we were sitting with all the locals and the gates were closed and we, you heard the gunshot right there and the people screaming and all the local guys just got up and ran. And as soon as they ran, I knew this is, this is not a good situation because they weren't curious. They were petrified and my European companions didn't really get the idea. They didn't know that they were in danger and I had to, you know, get them a pack to help get them to everyone to pack away and got them to hide away in their vehicles. And I got my family hidden away and everything. And then I stood in the shadows by then the sun had gone down. And then a man came in dressed in camouflage clothing, carrying an, an AK-47, a Kalashnikov. And he went into the building, grabbed some of the workers out and just started beating them with a metal pole. And that was a, for me, it was a tough situation because I was standing there and I'm thinking, how do I defend my family? How do I defend my friends? Do I hide away? Do I wait until they're curious or do I confront the situation? And so I stepped out of the shadows and he saw me and I walked up to him. And I put my hand out and I shook his hand. I said, my name's Rob. What's your name? And he looked at me for a second and then he shook my hand and he said, his name was Commander. 
or something macho like commando or something. Anyway, and he kind of just looked at me for a minute and he was like, where's your security detail? And I was like, oh, they're coming. You know, they're, they, they're a minute away. They'll be kissing. And, and then he kind of just checked me out for a while and then he ran out. And wow. that, that was tough. That was tough. But yeah, that was the longest night of our lives because we were not thinking. So, because he said he was, he did say that he was Nigerian special forces or something. But you don't know if that's true. He had no insignia. He had no, he had a camouflage uniform. There was, it was it, it no, you know, insignia. There's no way of knowing he was actually Nigerian military. And that was a very, very long, long night. And the next day was very difficult. We got lost. And anyway, I'm not going to go into that. But that was, there was, there was a situation where you're sitting there and going, again, can I do this? You know, we're mm -hmm. going to handle the situation. How do we get through this? How deep do, I, deep do I have to dig to get through this? And came out of it, came through it, took care of the family, made sure everyone was okay. And then two days later, we were in the most beautiful part of Nigeria you've ever seen. One of the most beautiful parts of Africa, up in the mountains and, mm. and just having the time of our lives with, and feeling safe and secure. Yeah. So that, that, that was, that was the West Africa was a roller coaster of emotions for sure. Yeah, it really sounds like it. Wow, this is a terrifying experience. And I mean, who knows what would have happened if you had reacted a little bit differently. I mean, apparently you did the right thing, but you know, no one trains you for these kind of situations that you just, you know, pretend to go out, don't show fear or whatever is, you know, could have been the completely wrong move. Could have been that he's like, oh, there's a, you know, white person. I'm going to take you hostage or something. You you don't know what's going to happen. Mm. There was a gamble. Yeah. It was a gamble. Yeah. But what my thinking was if, if they were going to take anyone hostage, um, yeah, just to finish my, my thinking was, my thinking was if they were going to take anyone hostage, I wanted it to be me. Um, not my wife and not my kids. So it was kind of, yeah. it was, it was an attempt to diffuse the situation, which I think it kind of did. But yeah, if, if I had to choose between my family being taken or me, it was obviously it's me. What are your tell people that tell you you're living the dream this is so great also want to do this pack my family and drive around the world what would be those one or two advices you give them and tell them it's a cool thing here's one or two things you should consider before you leave yeah the one thing i, I really try and impart is is it's not all hammocks and, and white sandy beaches and great looking vehicles this is the problem i have with social media is you have these people who are um, giving the wrong impression of what it really is, you know, because they'll get in their vehicles and they'll go look for the most beautiful beaches, views and locations, and they'll take these photos and they'll write these stories about how beautiful it is and how wonderful it is and how adventurous it is and all this kind of stuff. Um, mm. And not really give the, the, the true story, the true impression of what it really is like to, to travel long distance long-term through difficult countries and terrain. So I, I, I try and part a bit of reality, um, and you know, it, it kind of, yeah, there's a lot of these influences out there who, who are, they're not doing anyone any justice by pretending it's not what it is. You know what I mean? Anyway, mm -hmm. I'm not going to talk too much about that because they irritate me. The other thing I tell people is that you don't have to sell the farm. You know, you don't have to give up your whole life to go and do it. I wish that it, 
been someone like me around 12, 13 years ago who could have said to me, you know what, why don't you rent a smaller house? You know, why don't you put all your furniture in there? Why don't you go travel for six months and then fly back home and live a normal life for six months and then go travel for six months and then come back home and, Mm. you know, hold on to that normal life a little bit because what we did, it was, it was, it was a massive sacrifice. Basically we gave up everything and you don't have to do that to have an adventure. You don't have to do that to travel, you know, overland and explore places. Mm. You know, you can do it in fractions and steps. Um, I call it fly and drive, but basically that's the advice that I realized that this is the optimal way to do it if you can afford it. And, and I suppose the idea is go back home for six months and fill up the bank account, save up money, you know, recharge the battery, plan the next part of the journey, and then go off and do it. Leave the vehicle wherever or rent a vehicle or whatever. But my point basically is you don't have to live. There's a full-time on the road lifestyle to get the best out of this type of travel. I like that advice a lot. And also talked about this recently with yeah founders and, and, and startups and entrepreneurs that it is also some misconception that if you want to, you know, build a company, you have to quit everything and put everything into the company and, and build it up. And, and the other alternative is that, you know, you have some kind of still anchor, some income and, you know, you know, you do, you do that thing a little bit more, a little bit more on the side, but you have one thing going for you and that is security. You have some kind of feeling of security that, okay, if things happen in, you know, in the case of the company, if, you know, if I don't make any sales, if I don't have any customers, well, I still have that other thing going, which pays the bills. And similar to what you are saying, if, if things really go wrong on your trip, you know, well, I can go back, fill up the bank account, pay my bills and, you know, give it another shot. And that level of security, I don't think it should be underestimated how, how valuable it is for your comfort and your peace of mind. Right. You know, I suppose part of our confidence of being able to do what we did is having built that, that amazing business before we left South Africa, because it was it was achieving something that very few people were able to do. You know, there's a lot of people who want to be entrepreneurs and there's a lot of people who, who want to go out and make success and, and financial success, whatever they, de they define success to be. Not everyone gets it right. A lot of people end up giving up. And I had my fair share of failures before we were successful. I had a business that failed and I had jobs that didn't work out and, you know, before that we had that great success with that business and, and it was the success with that business that gave us the self-belief there. Hey, what else can we achieve? You know, but I'm, I'm with you a hundred percent. I mean, success doesn't come overnight. So you, if you see the, the top of the pyramid is, is, is what you call success. You just don't see the rest of the pyramid that's under the sand or the iceberg, you know, all that, all that work. And, and that's what I broke it down to when, when life got really, really tough for us on the road. What I would break it down to is what I want to achieve is little successes, small successes, daily successes, little things that, that, that I can look back on. I did well with that today. This, this worked out for us. That was a success. And it's all those small successes that build up to become a grand success or a great success. It's, mm. it's, and the setbacks, dealing with those setbacks, I like to think of it that way, you know, instead of, because it can be frustrating if you, if you, you like, I haven't achieved this. It's, you know, this hasn't worked for me. It's not, it's not happening fast enough that I think that's the, mm. that's a mistake. You must focus on the small steps that get you to the, the top of the mountain. 
I think that's a, that was another advice. And I think it's really, really true for so many things in life, for so many areas and of course business, but also, yeah, what, what you, what you did, the biggest undertaking that you've, you know, ever, ever done in your life, giving it all up and jumping on that, um, on that Land Rover. Thank you. Really, thank you so much for, for sharing all these insights from, yeah, from starting out in the childhood and giving a bit more perspective on, on South Africa. And I think painting a extremely realistic picture of, um, what it actually takes and what it entails to, to give everything up and, and live on the road. And from hearing you speak, I assume it's still one of the best decisions, if not the best decisions, decision that you've done and the absolute right thing, but it. It came at a big price and it came at a lot of sacrifices. And I think you, yeah, you, you did a really, you know, you did a really good job in conveying that. And, you know, everyone who sees these Instagram posts and I, I do too. And, you know, then you think, well, you know, how far away from their house is that spot? You know, or are, are they sleeping tonight? Are they actually sleeping there for, you know, two nights? Or is that, you know, setting it all up? And yeah, hopefully people start to think about this a little bit more when they, when they see anything on social media that, um, the stories that, that, that you've just told, they will not end up on, on social media, you know, yeah. but this is more the truth. Right. And uh, I've become an old man doing it. <laughs> I'm turning 50 next year. And I think for a lot of people, they, 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 they fear aging, getting older. And uh, it's the weirdest thing for me as I always look forward to turning 50, um, because Young me thought, well, 50 year old Graham is going to have shit together. He's going to, you know, he's going to be calm and wise and mature and, and probably quite wealthy. That was the idea I had when I was young and I'm, and I'm looking forward and I'm actually, I'm enjoying it because the, the fruits of our sacrifice, the fruits of our labor over all these years is that we've gotten to the point and I've gotten to the point where I've, I have wisdom and we've been through so much and experienced so much and learned so much, um, that I can't regret it. You know, I regret mm. not being wealthier. I regret perhaps spending the most productive years of my life, exploring the world and having adventures. And, and actually I don't regret that. I don't, <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, I could have been sitting in in an office making money that I could have had a lot of money. If we carried on with our business, we would have been wealthy. But mm. I think what we have in here and have in here from all these years on the road, you can't buy that. And, and I'm pretty excited because you talk about being an entrepreneur. Um, and, and I'm seeing, well, you know, I've achieved this, I've achieved that, I've achieved that. And now it's the start of something new because I'm still going to be traveling but I'm also trying to think of what I can do that is going to push me even further again. What is the next stage? What is the next challenge? And, and if it takes 10 years to achieve the goal, that's fine. If it takes 15 years, that's fine. And I, and I'm going to work towards it and I'm looking forward to it. Mm. Me too. I'm very excited to follow you, follow you along and see what, uh, yeah, what the next, what the next journey is, what the next big trip is. But as you said, uh, about a month ago, you moved into, into a house, which is a big deal for you guys. So I think they will be a little bit of enjoying that, which is, yeah, yeah which is, yeah. which is great. <laughs> uh, even though, I mean, so, some of you like it more than others, 
um, as I've heard, but it, it has, it has its perks. Absolutely. Mm. I have one, one last question that I put on an unusual question, but that I like to ask, and especially, you know, you, that you had to live for such a long time with so little in terms of materialistic things of gadgets. But when you look at all the trips and you look at your Land Rover and then all the setup, what was the one item that you wouldn't want to have missed or the one thing that you would tell people, if you do this, bring that? Oh, one item. I probably would say yeah, a Leatherman. One, one... A Leatherman. They're great. I mean, yeah, they are, they're absolutely, they're absolute great tools. And I imagine you need them pretty much, pretty much every day on the, on the road. Oh, it's a Leatherman is fantastic. So I had the Leatherman wave, which I, I had a, a leather pouch that it came with. And I always had a hundred US dollars hidden inside that pouch. And so that was security. It was, I had two blades on it. So if I ever got in a situation which I needed to defend myself, I had that, um, or defend my family. I could cut meat with it. I could cut branches with it. I could fix things with it. I could, you know, it, it was just something that was always, I fixed the Land Rover. I don't know how many times I got the Land Rover running again, just with the, with the Leatherman being able to just fix this bit of wire here or do whatever. So yeah, absolutely. The Leatherman's the way to go. Leatherman wave. That was Graham, who truly shared the ups and downs of what so many of us call freedom. Just the thought of jumping in your car and seeing beaches and rainforests, but it comes with a hefty downside and a hefty price that everyone needs to be willing to pay. I hope this episode helped some of you to know a little bit better what it actually means to have this van life and that it's not all glossy and beautiful images, but it's a very, very tough choice, but for many, also the right choice. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And if you want to know more about Graham, you will find all the links in the show notes, or you can go to worldexplorerscollective.com where you can read about the podcast, read about the show, and also learn about expedition funding, where you can apply to receive funding for your own expedition. And if you like the show and if you like this episode, please give stars or some reviews. It only takes a few seconds to click that button and it means the absolute world to us. Because that way we can keep having amazing and inspiring guests on the show. Thank you so much for listening and I hope to see you next time. <laughs>